This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, this is interesting because you've actually walked into the area that I do want to walk into, and I took off my theologian's hat, and now I'm putting it back on and make some uh, observations about what I think is going on here. Um, I think that, that what we're seeing at the core of this decision, and this is not a legal observation, this is just a, a, a observation about the dynamics of what's taking place, is that uh, we have become an increasingly secularized culture. And we are evaluating our and making our moral decisions in, a, in an increasingly secularized room, if I can describe it that way. When you take issues of transcendence and pull that dimension out of the moral equation, what inevitably is going to fill the space of that room is, is, a, is a pursuit of liberty. Liberty is a very high value in our culture. It, it's, it's lifted up as central, I mean, you know, life, liberty, and et cetera, you know, those kinds of phrases. And so, and so once you take uh, taking a look from a moral perspective at these decisions, you've almost inevitably set it up to go in the direction that, it, that it's now going, because you don't have any transcendent basis to make these judgments around, which, which to me shows the importance of a of thinking either theologically or in terms of natural law, some type of having some type of transcendent ethic to apply to these discussions, or everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and what ends up trumping is, well, everyone gets to make their choice end of discussion. Is that fair? Yeah. Not very fair. I think that's fair, absolutely. And, and, I, and, and it's, it's one of the questions that, that I, I've raised repeatedly. Does society have the right to pass moral judgments or judgments on matters of morality, and if it's so, does it have the right of law to enforce it? And, and uh, you, you know, it seems to me that society uh, has passed judgments, uh, moral judgments regarding sex here. It's, it's not just simply the same sex coupling. There, there is the, the whole idea that adultery is, is wrong. And so the question is, how do you keep pushing forward on what is the basis for the moral judgment that is being passed by society? And I don't think any basis is being judged. And essentially what happens, Justice Kennedy has announced himself as the arbiter of these competing moral judgments. Yeah, and he isn't and, and of course the dissent emphasized the fact we have a process by which we can work through this as a society and it's a very democratic process in which the people speak and the people vote. But when the referendum case from California was reversed and I don't remember the name of that case, but when uh, but when that happened, which kind of started this this sequence that we've been in, a referendum eight, if I remember correctly, eight. Uh, um, uh, which in which the state of California voted to outlaw same-sex marriage, and then that was overturned. Um, 
what what happened is is that just, we just a minute you got to make clear where it was overturned okay it was overturned in the district court sustained by the ninth u.s court of appeal the ninth circuit uh-huh it got to the supreme court and the supreme court punted on it huh. supreme court didn't decide anything uh-huh. which meant that the decision out of the ninth circuit was the one that stood which outlawed uh, the or which overturned the the vote of the people in California. Okay, so so the point here is is that the the, the, the really really we who who gets to determine when the moral standards of a community are going what they are and how they're going to be uh, uh, legislated and, and overseen, and and the dissent said that process should lie with the people. That's right. Okay. Uh, and the dissent said pretty strongly, uh, in variety of ways, that uh, the the justices who voted uh, for this case and who then became the majority, basically um, took upon themselves a right that judges don't have, and that should belong with the people. And and should belong with the people in the states. Yes, fair enough. In in each state, and so. And, and so th- that's that's the legal part of the complaint that's going on here in terms of the way the decision is made. M- again, my own observation is is that what we are seeing is the movement. Uh, we're seeing two features operating together: this absolute commitment to liberty without a without a context for having uh, moral discussions. I mean, not only who gets to decide, but then how do you have that discussion debate? What factors play into it? And we almost have walled off. Uh, the moral elements off to the side as a part of this discussion, which is which I think is unfortunate for our larger uh, public square um, uh, discussion. I, I, I would just correct you on one point, Daryl. Okay. What we've walled off are religiously motivated moral discussions from the discussion, because you know you can argue that equality is a moral uh, determination. You can argue that uh, the the unity, which is unique in marriage, is a moral discussion, and and simply wall off any religiously based discussion of the morality of those questions. That's true, but you also can approach it from a natural law transcendent point in terms of arguing from design and generic kinds of ways that may or may not appeal to religion as well. And we've exactly. also we've also walled off those conversations uh, pretty much. Two, um, okay. Well, let me go to the let me go to the third one. I think the third one is interesting. Uh, a third basis for protecting the right to marry is that it safeguards children and families that draw meaning from related rights of childbearing or child rearing, procreation, and education. And what strikes me in reading this is is an inherent issue wrapped up in same sex marriage. Now, normally this gets discussed with reference to procreation, with the simple observation of two people of the same sex cannot produce a child, okay? Now, hopefully we will never get a Supreme Court decision on that question, okay? Uh, that that's a pretty straightforward uh, observation that, that it, it if you have two men or two women, you're not going to get a child. So that's one way that this – and this is one of the natural law arguments related to, uh, related to marriage involving people of two different sexes. The only way you can produce a child and have a family, which is part of what the point of marriage is, is to, uh, is to uh, have two people of different sex to do this. But here's the second part of this that I think is hidden in this that's, that's related to this third premise and that raises a question for me. And this is not a legal observation. This is a practical observation, and that's this. In the midst of child rearing, 
who, um, how are the two genders in our creation represented? Okay, if I have a same-sex marriage and I'm raising a child, how does that child come to understand what, what the engagement is uh, between a male and a female in our larger world when both parents are either male or both parents are female? Okay, and here's the joker card in this, in this argument. So couldn't one argue that same-sex marriage is discriminatory with reference to the child, okay, and the way they're raised? So my question is whether the third premise that he's put forward even stands, okay, that there, there's a counter-argument that could be made about what's best for procreation. Well, we know that one's out. That one doesn't count. Uh, Child-rearing, well, that depends on how you view the child-rearing, and of course education is nothing but an extension of that. So, so I have questions about this third premise, not just, on, not just on the fact that there isn't even a legal argument made, but just at the practical level of what's being claimed. Yeah, and I mean, I think you're, I think you're nailing it because I think what what was, and I was at the argument, and mm-hmm. and, and basically what what they're trying, what Kennedy's trying to counter is the states. The states were arguing, look, states have historically, and and the states have an interest in protecting children, mm-hmm. and the states believe that in order to protect children, the best place for a child is to be raised by one man and one woman. And there's all kinds of research that supports lots, that. Mark, Mark, yeah. Mark DeGeneres at, yeah. at, at University of Texas, that there's lots of research yeah. at the best place. And therefore, shouldn't the state then be allowed in its laws to promote that type of relationship? So Kennedy kind of, what he does is, he doesn't like that argument, so he takes it and then takes this thing, well, you know, it, 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 it would be better than at least to have a family you're going to discriminate against. But I think what you're saying is exactly right. Again, this is an issue that's, again, protecting children, something states do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law's there to promote that. That's mm-hmm. the rational basis for, for, for the law. So he takes that argument, kind of he kind of turns it on, on its head and said, oh, no, 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 this is how we protect children. Interesting. Well, isn't that a reason that this should have been debated in the legislatures? That's where you you deal with this. You have the – and let the legislature decide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's the problem because this is sort of – to me, this is the, the part of the opinion that most reads like Roe versus Wade, hmm. where, where basically Roe versus Wade eventually gets the science wrong. Mm-hmm. We know that today. Mm-hmm. The, the science of that, that, was, that was mentioned by Blackman and, and Roe versus Wade is, is now – we all know is wrong mm-hmm. for the justification for abortion. Here, I think we're going to look back and say what Kennedy's saying here is just – is just flat wrong. Mm-hmm. The science, social science for, for, versus uh, other science, but social science is wrong. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Rollin, you have anything you want to weigh in on, the, on this? Uh, on no, this I, 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 I agree with, with both of you completely on, on that. There, there, there is one thing that I would say, going back to the question of natural law. Uh-huh. The whole concept of natural law has evolved considerably over the past 2,500 years. 
and and was really in disrepute for much of the last century until John Finnis from Oxford came along and started writing. But even if you look at John Finnis's book in 1979, I believe it is, and what John Finnis is arguing or saying today is that what the natural law argument does is it provides a framework in which respectful dignified discussion can take place it's it's not a hammer that says biblical law applies or it's not a hammer that you can determine what's right on the basis of reason it simply provides a framework in which these issues can be discussed and and if that is true and I, I, I have long had some problems with some of the natural law theory because within Catholic circles, I don't think that it made sufficient account for the effect of the fall. Mm-hmm. But being that what it is, it does seem to me that what Jeff is saying, these discussions take place at the state level rather than decided by nine justices at the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I think I, I think the hidden issue, and I think this is coming out clearly in the podcast as a whole. It, the hidden issue in all this is that we tend to think these are decisions, and government ought to make them. But but at least that's the way a lot of people will view it. That government's got to settle this in order for this to work. But the problem is, is that government itself is is a broad term, and so. At what level of government is this going to work, and who should maintain? So there is this states and federal rights, and the way that's those areas have traditionally been handled. That's wrapped up in these discussions. That kind of gets lost in the larger debate, but it's actually been part of the way our society has functioned, and and the federal government is taking more and more territory all the time, if I can say it that way. And in the and in the process, the states are are losing. Um, some level of ground in terms of how they how these issues have traditionally been handled. Uh, but what is rather interesting is going back to the King v. Burwell case. Mm-hmm. You know what the Supreme Court did not do in that case was give deference to the decisions of the IRS. Mm-hmm. IRS made the determination as to which subsidies were available. And and so essentially what happened the Supreme Court decided that case not on the basis of deference to other uh, agency or or body of government which is often the case but rather uh, sua sponte on their own or in their own rights and I think that's what's going on a lot here there's no deference given to the 13 states that adhere to the definition of marriage nor is there any deference to the fact that the bulk of the states which now recognize marriage do so on the basis of court rulings not on the basis of the decisions of the people yeah that's interesting now you did you did a little latin thing on us there that i'm going to have to have you explain to people or else most people aren't going to follow what it is that you were saying and i didn't i don't even remember the exact phrase sweep bontus or something like that was that yeah sui sponte. basically what what it means is they take it on themselves and make the decision without any basis coming up through the appellate process or reference or deference to other agencies to decide that particular area. 
and and judges and justices should be reluctant to simply decide things on their own that haven't trickled up through the appellate system. Okay, well, our time is just about getting away from us here uh, as we uh, work through these two cases, and I, and I think the lesson that we have that we've seen is it, it is. The court in two cases has taken upon itself uh, a significant authority, and the thing that these two cases share is they've taken on themselves an authority that, generally speaking, in the past has been left to the legislative process more directly. Um, and, and so that's one of the complaints that we're dealing with. There actually is a whole dimension of this that we uh, haven't discussed at all, but we're out of time, so we're not going to have time to do it now. So I'm going to have to invite you all back down the road. Um, and that is, what are the implications of this? Um, what does this mean for the First Amendment? versus the 14th Amendment, or religious liberty on one hand and these extension of rights on the others, and the two are headed on a pretty good collision course in terms of what it means for for pastors and churches and for and for same-sex couples, for that matter. It works on both sides. And uh, uh, and and so uh, I'll lo- I would love some point to have you back to have that, a focused discussion on that question, which probably does deserve a whole 50 minutes like we're giving to this, uh, because that's a very complex question and no one really knows where that's going. In fact, in a, in a shorthand kind of way, I'll ask you this question, and that is, how open is the question of what happens between the First and Fourteenth Amendments as a result of this decision, Jeff? Well, I, I think that is the issue. I mean, after Obergefell, you know, Obergefell did not overrule the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. The First Amendment still exists. Mm-hmm. And so this, you're going to have a clash, and we're going to see it over the next months. We're already seeing it at Liberty Institute, we're, a clash between this newly created right, the, mm-hmm. this newly created right to same-sex marriage, with the First Amendment. It's going to play out over months, years maybe a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hopeful, in light of this Supreme Court's past record on religious liberty, that it will continue to protect religious liberty. Well, in fact, the fact that they that both decisions, pro and con, made an effort to talk about religious liberty in the midst of making this decision seems to be that they're laying a path for being able to go there should this happen with an awareness that something's got to be sorted out. The trouble is no one knows what that, exactly that's going to be. Right. I think the silver lining of the Oberfell case is at least Justice Kennedy mentions religious liberty. Mm -hmm. At least he mentioned it, which means nine judges signed on to recognizing that there are religious liberty protections. The question is, what what is the scope and extent of those protections? What does it look like? Yeah. Uh, Roland, any observations? And the problem with with Justice Kennedy giving kind of short thrift to the religious belief First Amendment issue is if you look at his earlier decisions, he talks about animus that is born in religious uh, ideology. And and so, you know, where is that going? My sense is that this is not simply a First Amendment issue. It was rather interesting how Justice Kennedy issued uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and so it raises the whole question as to where we are as a civil society, which includes all the institutions of civil society, both churches, religious uh, organizations, institutions, hospitals, academic institutions, local clubs. Uh, it, It affects everything in society. And to the extent that the First Amendment includes within it the sense of a uh, uh, freedom of conscience, 
Uh, I think we've got problems. Yeah, I, I, uh, we, we're getting ready to hold a forum here on campus for pastors discussing this particular dimension of the question, the implications of what this decision means for churches and how they need how how they should react to a variety of potential scenarios that emerge from the from the results of the decision, et cetera, and 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 the possibilities for what's going on. I mean, we've heard about photographers and cake makers and flower florists and that kind of thing, but literally it. Marriage and family is so fundamental to our society, it touches everything. And in the midst of touching everything, the, the multiple scenarios that exist are almost endless. And so I, I think we have just – we're in the beginning of what is going to be, as Jeff said, a long, involved discussion, which only means that there will be plenty of opportunity to invite you all back to discuss more of this down the road when we have time. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through these decisions very carefully in terms of what's going on legally. I think it's important that people understand how our uh, national institutions institutions work and what's going on within them. Uh, and, and so I think there's been value to this discussion. And we really do appreciate you being a part of our table broadcast where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we hope you'll be back with us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.